Good evening, everyone. My name's Alexandra Coglin. I'm a music critic and journalist, and I'll be hosting tonight's panel discussion. Um, welcome also to everyone listening at home via the ENO podcast. Just before I bring the panel out to talk to you, I've been asked to give you a very quick introduction <laughs> to the Mask of Orpheus, which is no small task. The myth of Orpheus first emerges in the 6th century BC, but it's not until the 29th century and Virgil's Georgics that it really takes on the form that we know today. Since then, of course, um, Orpheus has returned in literature, in art and music. And what interests me is why this myth has endured, why this story has continued where so many others have fallen away. Orpheus, of course, the son of the sun god Apollo, such a talented musician that he could tame wild beasts and even charm the gods themselves with his music. Um, he meets and marries the beautiful Eurydice, and they live happily for a while until one day when she's out in the fields, possibly being pursued by the shepherd Aristeus, who is also in love with her. She's bitten by a snake and she dies. Rather than face life without her, Orpheus vows to go down to the underworld to rescue her. He braves the Furies, he braves the three-headed dog Cerberus, and he finds his wife, but there is a condition for bringing her back to the land of the living. If at any point during the journey he turns to look at her, he will lose her all over again. So they set out, but even knowing what he knows, Orpheus can't quite restrain himself. He turns to take one, just one look at his wife, and in that moment, she dies all over again. The story of Orpheus is, of course, a story about the power of music, not just to enchant us, to beguile us, but also to um, dissolve violence and hatred, to defy even death itself. It's no wonder that so many composers particularly have been drawn to it over the years. It doesn't seem like a coincidence that the beginning of modern opera as we understand it today in 1607 with Monteverdi starts with an Orpheus opera, nor again when 150 years later Gluck was looking to reinvent opera, that it was once again to Orpheus that he returned. And of course tonight, in our own century, the bad boy of British music, the avant-garde Harrison Burt whistle, for him to return to none other than the Orpheus myth for his own powerful gesture in 20th century opera. The Orpheus myth has become a touchstone for composers. They play with us as an audience. We know the story, and that expectation creates something that they can subvert, they can challenge, they can interrogate. And in so doing, it becomes a dialogue between us rather than a simple storytelling monologue. Of course, it can also become a scaffolding for various different agendas. Take Monteverdi, for example. Why did he choose Orpheus? Well, it's possible that with opera in its sort of infant years at this point, still very fragile, without any lineage, without any heritage to draw on, you lean on a classical myth to give status, to give weight to your brand new art form. And then if you're Gluck trying to prove that music can be stripped down to its absolute essence and still have incredible emotional power, what else do you use as your, your scaffolding, your structure, than one of the most famous love stories of all time? Offenbach, of course, the same, uh, same reason but the very different motivation to take one of the most powerful tragic love stories and to turn it on its head, to pull the rug out from under us and give us a satirical comedy of all things when we're not expecting it. But with Burt Whistle, what's the motivation there? I think in this case, it's all about process. Burt Whistle knows that we know the story, so it doesn't become about what happens next. It's about how. It's about the act of storytelling rather than the story itself. Now, no one explains his process better than Burt Whistle himself, so I've got a quote that I just wanted to read you in which he explains sort of what drew him to the myth and a bit about his own process as a composer. He writes... 
I knew the kind of opera I wanted to write long before I selected the story of Orpheus. Incidentally, at some points, he dallied with the story of Faust and actually swapped it in. So there's that sense of, in a way, any myth might do. But I knew it would have to come out of the way I compose. I'm concerned with repetition, with going over and over the same event from different angles so that a multi-dimensional musical object is created, an object which contains a number of contradictions as well as a number of perspectives. So contradictions and perspectives, that's what it all comes down to, this multi-dimensional object he creates both musically and in terms of narrative in front of us. At some points we're standing here looking face on, at other times we might come round the side. Contradictions held in a single coherent whole. Now, I'm going to let uh, these guys do the majority of the talking about the work itself, but just a couple of, I suppose, landmarks, which I find helpful when I'm going in to watch it, just to know what I've got to hang on to. How are the contradictions manifest in this particular opera? Well, for a start, the three central characters, Orpheus, Eurydice, and Aristeus, the, um, the shepherd who is her would-be lover, um, are all represented by three different performers. A singer, a, a dancer, or in this case, an aerialist, an acrobat who works with silks, and then uh, what Harrison Whistle calls a puppet, which is also a singer, but wearing a much larger mask and costumes. Now, each of those represent a different aspect of the character. So the singers are Orpheus, man, Eurydice, woman. So the thinking, feeling, bleeding, physical manifestation of the character. Then we have the aerialists who are the hero and heroine, so the doing, the action part of the myth. Then we have the puppet singer who are the mythological perspective. So in turn, each of these represents, I suppose, a different element of, of expression. So Bert Whistles talks about the singer as being the sort of the emotional essence of the character. So at any given moment, all three of them can be present on stage. But if you want to know what somebody's feeling, you look to the singer. If you want to know what's going on physically, you look at the acrobat. And if you want to know a different perspective, a different take on the myth or the story at that moment, you look to the puppet. Um, there are also contradictions in terms of plot. The death of Orpheus takes various different forms, whether he's torn apart by the Thracian women who are jealous of his rejection, whether he's smote by Jove's thunderbolt for giving away the secrets of the gods, or whether he hangs himself out of grief for his wife. All of those different endings are held somehow in this opera. And similarly with Aristeus and Eurydice, whether it's a rape, whether she goes willingly, whether she consciously betrays her husband. Again, we see both of those versions played out here. So I think now it's time for me to stop talking and hand over to the panel. So can you join me in welcoming assistant director Derek Walker, assistant conductor Adam Hickox, and costume designer Daniel Lismore. So thank you all for joining us. Um, Adam, the New York Times described The Mask of Orpheus as a world-defining modernist opera. The Guardian called it the finest British opera of the last half century. Why is it only now we're seeing it being staged for the second time? Well, I think it comes down to two things. The first is, without question, its scale. Uh, this is a, an opera for two conductors, uh, an array of soloists, full chorus, and a gargantuan wind and percussion orchestra. Uh, and that in itself is an enormous undertaking for any opera company, but also I think it comes down to courage. It is a piece that requires a really special team of leaders to put it on, and that's what we've been lucky enough to have in Martin Brabins and Daniel Kramer. And in terms of, I mean, you, we've already, both of us, hinted at the, the sheer complexity, the scale, the scope of putting this thing on. Perhaps both, ask a question to both you and Derek, what are just some of the major challenges of putting this piece on the stage? 
I, I, th I think um, Adam said it already. I think the, the complexity is, is definitely in its scope and its scale. I think the fact that there's so much going on at any one given point in time is really probably the biggest thing from a production point of view. Is uh, I, know, I know from our team point of view, we, we had to divide and conquer. We have three couples and three stories on the go on top of each other all of the time. So as a result, it was very much a case of, of delegating the responsibility for, for those couples to different people as a way of detailing as we went through the process. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a beast in its, in its scope and scale. Um, but even from, from the page, I mean, where do you start with this score? It's the most amazing thing, but also the most daunting. Adam, with two conductors, how does that even work practically? So I think that is potentially the most unorthodox aspect of the piece. Uh, and the, the, the two conductors have extremely different roles. The first conductor uh, does a lot more conducting and essentially steers the ship. But the second conductor is there uh, at the most crucial climactic moments, often to add uh, extra intensity within the orchestra, but sometimes, quite literally, conducting different music altogether at the same time. Now, the challenge for the second conductor, in many ways, is a little bit more, because they have to be exactly aware of where the first conductor is in their music at all times, and not vice versa, really. So it is an enormous challenge for whoever is doing that second part. How many people are involved in just getting this on the stage every night, including performers and tech team? Oh, well over hundreds. Yeah, well over a hundred. Um, it's, it's amazing even just looking at the, the changeover that, that's going on at the moment, um, just how many people uh, are, are moving around all of the bits and pieces that are required. Uh, interestingly enough, for this piece, when the Orpheus season was announced, it was originally intended that, that they would all be performed on the same set. And very quickly, that, that changed into one set that could then basically fill the needs of all of the different productions. Um, but just the, the changeover, even though that was the original intention, is, is definitely a, a mammoth beast. So You can see a few elements, can't we, of yeah. the, um, the Offenbach set there, mm -hmm. can't we? Do you want to give us a hint of, of how there is some overlap? Um, I mean, yeah, there's definitely overlap when it comes to the, the staircase sequences and, and, and how that works. Um, it's interesting from, from our individual show point of view that the, the components will spin around and they have all this detail on the back of them, which we're not used to seeing. And without seeing the other shows prior to ours going, going live, um, it's, it's interesting just where that detail and, and complexity has come in and, and that's Lizzie Clacken. I mean, she's obviously thought of every aspect and how those sets can all come together and therefore how four shows can be done on, on the budget required. It's quite unusual to stage four different versions of, of the same story in mm. a single season. Um, we've already t I've, I've talked a little bit about the ways in which Offenbach and Gluck approach those, but can you guys give me a sense of what is Bert Whistle's take? What's his stake in this particular story thematically? I mean, I, I think you've said a lot of it already in, in that he's really interested in the nature of myth. And I think one of the things that he does with repetition is look at the different perspectives and how myth is passed on from generation to generation. Um, the idea that what we see through repetition are different people's perspectives and different sharpening and bluntening of the different aspects of the myth. Um, I think from a production point of view, I know that Daniel was particularly interested in the nature of grief. So he, he's looked at the three Orpheus as being three different characters who have dealt with grief in a different way. Um, so we have Orpheus the man who is unable to move beyond his grief and therefore it ends up 
ultimately consuming him. Whereas we have Orpheus, the, the myth, who's able to transcend that and, and basically achieve much more like godliness um, by overcoming that grief and, and by taking the advice and, and the feedback from those around him in order to, to be able to overcome. And then we have uh, Orpheus, the, the aerialist, or, or Orpheus, the hero, who, who responds with rage and, and wanton destruction. So it's three very different takes on, on that one emotional stake. And I think that then gives us a really interesting nature of, of grief itself. Um, but how those, those different paths end, end up and divulging and then coming back together again. And where do you start with something like this? I mean, there's just such, so much content here. Can you give us a clue as to where Daniel, of day one, um, what's the process? May I, may I say? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so it was actually over two years ago we got together and he uh, said, we've got this thing. And he asked me to kind of come in on it. And Derek was there and uh, Lizzie was there. So we actually worked a year and a half before we even spoke to anybody else to interpret it in today and the modern world and how things would be perceived today. And, and, and literally, it was a year and a half every single week for hours and hours and hours. Mm. It was kind of like mental torture, but brilliant <laughs> mental torture. It was like... We, we got down to the pure art of it, and everything that you see on stage comes from the myth or comes from Burt Whistle. We didn't, we didn't um, fabricate this. It, 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 every, everything that you'll see tonight actually comes from somewhere. So it wasn't just... Uh, and we just tried to kind of mm. make it right for the production. Mm -hmm. Were there things that got abandoned along the way, sort of ideas that you went <laughs> down a rabbit hole or down a dead end? And Definitely, yeah. <laughs> Many, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk us through just the process of evolution, taking those conversations and presumably quite a lot of sort of free associating and discussions, how do you make that into a show? I mean, I think it's interesting with, with Daniel's process. Um, I mean, he's, he's obviously massively prepared and he's actually been preparing this um, for around four years now, I yeah. think, is when he started. And he's, he's tried to pitch this project a number of times, um, particularly after Punch and Judy. And he's, he's definitely a fan of, of Harrison's work. So given that that's the case, in, in his mind, he, he basically has a complete map of the entire show. And then as he works with different collaborators, then obviously, as you say, some of those ideas get abandoned and, and some of them change and, and he takes on board all of the different perspectives. Um, but when we, when we start day one of rehearsals, he, he's got a version of the show in his head and in his score. Um, and I think one of, one of the strengths of him as a director is the ability to be able to chop and change as needed on the floor and take in all of the, the, the offering and the feedback from, from the singers as well in order to either stick to what he's planned or find a better way. So there's been a bit of evolution in the rehearsal room definitely. as well? Yeah, definitely. And how far do the personalities of the individual singers sort of play into that? I mean, Peter Hoare, for example, who plays Orpheus the Man, mm -hmm. is so central, so dominant mm -hmm. here. Has he, has he shaped this process and Ab this reading? Absolutely. I think everyone on the production has shaped it. It's, it's kind of like a... a, a a world of artists that's got together and we've we've created this whole thing and it's nothing like I've ever seen. I, I've not been to like hundreds of operas, maybe some of you have, but um, it, it's extraordinary. It's like there's so many worlds happening at once and there's so many things and if you, it's kind of like a, a moving picture mm. and if, if you get it, it's amazing. And But you don't, I, I feel if you watch this and you don't get it, at least let your mind know that you, it's okay that you don't get it, like that's, you know, but, but every, there is symbolism all the way through, mm. so it is actually explained, whether you get it or not, which it's a different, it's your interpretation. 
Mm. And is this the first opera that you've worked on as a costume designer? It is, yeah. I mean, what of all the operas to start with, this isn't, you know... <laughs> yeah, I was offered The Marriage of Figaro, but this seemed better. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your... I'm fascinated by your first reaction. Did you listen to a CD? What was your first encounter with this score? I took the CD home, and I, I remember my father was like... He was dying at the time, and my mum and dad were listening to the music, and I was like... I've really got myself into something here. <laughs> and I listened to the music three times, but the, what the, was the most fascinating thing is that Burt Whistle has kind of a, a Bible, a visual Bible, as well as the, the, the score. He has mm. this kind of amazing Bible that you just kind of, you get. If you actually look and study it, you really, you really get the drawings and everything, and things come to life from the paper, mm. so. I think this is, is Peter's libretto. And yeah, it's, it's like a mathematical document. Yeah. And if you stare at it for at least a week, eventually some of it unlocks. Yeah. And, uh, and it has its own language. There was its own yeah. language written for this. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it, it just it, it gives you an insight into the genius behind the creators of this work. Um, but it's very hard to access as well. <laughs> Did you speak to Zinoviev as well during the process about this? Yeah, yeah not as much as I, I thought we may have. I mean, Daniel probably did, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but once, once the process started, um, I, know, I know that he was going backwards and forwards on a few things, but usually outside of the rehearsal room rather than, than inside. And I'm interested to know, with this particular piece, are the creators offering you absolutes? Are they able to guide you through or is the whole point that it's labyrinth and you, you have to lose yourself and find your own way? I think Daniel found his own way of making this happen. Um, yeah. he, he really did. And then he went to Burt Whistle. And, and Burt Whistle approved everything. And he said he loved it. Mm. And uh, I remember on the opening night, he said um, that he had our blessing. And he couldn't have had a better team to make his vision come true. They were his words. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this really healthy level of respect um, where the creative team obviously know that they're, they're serving the work. But at the same time, the, the creators of the work want to see what the next evolution of that, that work is in realization. Um, so I think, I think it's been a really healthy process in terms of backwards and forwards and, and giving, giving each the space that they need. Um, but at the same time, being able to check in and, and make sure that we're on the right track. And for you, Daniel, coming from the work of modern art, of, of fashion, this must be quite a different experience working as part of a team to create a much a bigger whole. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it was kind of like creating. I've, I've made couture for a long time, and I've. I, I also worked with David Lachapelle on Sergei, Sergei Palunin's project um, that he staged a while ago at Sadler's Wells. Um, but I've. I've always delved into the theatre world, but always on the side. So I've. I've never really been in the the midst of it, and and um, the um, it was very different to creating. Uh, you know, a, a fashion show or a coat from Mariah Carey or, you know, a, a, tour, a band tour thing, but... It, it, different it in what way? Different in... There's already a script there. So if, you know, if you go to a pop star and you, like, Mariah Carey's going on tour and she's, she needs this, that, this, and she has, like, a, a vision, you have to kind of fulfil that vision, but there's no actual script. You create that for them. So there's, the script was already there, and you have to kind of go along and you may or may not get the outfits, but they there's some kind of... So it would have been really helpful to actually speak to Burt Whistle at the beginning of this, because, <laughs> which we didn't. Um, but a year and a half later, I met him, and I said I had one question for him, and I said, um, "How? Where was your head when you wrote this?" I thought I'm only going to ask one question. He's very busy. 
And he said, well, I, I'm a dreamer. And I'm, I, it, was a, it was a dream. Like, and I said, oh, I'm so happy you said that because most of the um, costumes actually come from lucid dreaming whilst listening to the music. And that's something I've, I've studied for a long time. And um, so it was a, yeah, it's, it was very different. <laughs> and for us, um, I think watching this, this dreamscape, which is so full of stimulus, the costumes to me seem to fulfill quite a different role to normal costumes in that they give us some guidance and things to hold on to. Yeah, I, th I mean, you, you go to many operas, and I, I'm not saying that the outfits are not beautiful, but um, f for me, that I go to so many operas, and I go to see visuals as well as hear and see and, and experience the whole thing. And I, this is definitely... So, I mean, I just tried to watch it from, from not in my own head, and just I sat there and I was kind of mesmerised. But I think what you have a job to kind of captivate an audience, and whatever that is... Um, you, you know, I'm, I may as well go for it. There's there's an opportunity to make really beautiful work with a really great masterpiece and to try and think of something original. And uh, it's it's a big task, but uh, I was happy. Can you talk us through just some of the visual inspirations? I know critics have pointed to the Day of the Dead, for example. Yeah, but and critics are critics. Like, that's, you know, I, I think critic. I, I read all these reviews, and one, one of them actually was a lie. It said that I paraded two models around the um, ENO before the production. That's actually a lie. Okay. A lot of the ideas were inspiration, but then I looked at my friend Daphne Guinness, and she's a really great singer in opera, and, and she's like my, day, my version of Eurydice today. So I asked her if I could um, kindly take her as inspiration, and she said yes. And then, um, because they're ascending into um, gods, I thought, well, there's no gods in this, well, there are in myths, but for me, and, and I think the next thing of evolution in humans, that we're gonna find aliens, and I thought, well, that's the next best thing. So um, I was very much inspired by aliens, and then I looked at, um, there are a lot of jellyfish inspiration in here, and there's all sorts of um, kind of, you know, um, there's a cliche, moment of where where, where uh, Orpheus may experience like um, some kind of dark moment and I thought another outfit made of black material it's not going to work for me it's not going to work for who wants to see that how many times have you seen that on stage and I thought acid pink mm -hmm. is like it's a really dangerous kind of color like it's really vibrant it's garish it's it's out there so um, I use pink for many of the creations and I those outfits were from real nightmares. There was, so. there was a lot of, lot of conversations yeah. about black versus pink as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're looking for pink for danger in this opera. Yes. Yeah. Derek, this notion of contradictory narratives of multiple, if not personalities, then versions of characters, how is that physically managed in this staging? Well, I mean, the easiest way to, to stage that is, is through different actors. So through different singers, through different performers. And so... Essentially, I think one of the things that, that we're kind of using as a bit of a touchstone with the piece is the moments where all three officers happen to be doing the same thing um, is probably the point where the story is most true. Um, but at the same time, it, it's that, that, again, it's that nature of myth thing that it, as these characters go through their grief, they reinvent their own memories, they reinvent their own dreams, their own stories, and what you get is the different perspectives from each of those characters, which can make it a hell of a lot more complex. Um, but what it does is it means that you've got these contradictions already there in the story, and, and I think we have to make our own judgments about which ones we believe and which ones have led each of those individual Orpheuses to, to their ultimate destination. Does it resolve at the end? Does one Orpheus 
come to come to a point of certainty, if not resolution? Oh, you have to see the show. Yeah, you have to see. <laughs> In terms of the the music. Uh, Adam, uh, we've talked about sort of the themes that, that Bert Whistle's been playing with in terms of you know love and loss, particularly grief. But but musically, how is all of that sort of manifest? Well, I can, I mean, there are so many, and I can only illuminate a couple. But I think one of the interesting ones is the is the decay of the myth as the opera goes on. Mm. By by the end of the opera, uh, the myth gradually decays into into something unrecognizable, and this is reflected really clearly in the music because increasingly the music in the third act becomes more and more disparate and fragmented until by the end we just have tiny four-bar cells of music that are uh, separated by almost two minute spans and I think that that is a sort of genius way of of finding a, a kind of counterpoint with the way in which the myth becomes nothing in the end. And there are other, there are other ways. I mean, the, the idea of memory is something that comes back a lot. And um, the, there are full chunks of music that are, that are repeated from the first act into the third. Um, but what makes it so interesting is the context has changed so much as the rest of the opera has progressed. And so they mean something entirely different and they have an entirely different dramatic effect. So there are a number of ways in which in which uh, the myth is treated, but yeah. You've already highlighted that there's quite a difference between Act 3 and the others, and of course there was a gap in composing, wasn't there, between them? Yes, indeed, and I think that you, you can, to a certain extent, feel that. Each act certainly inhabits uh, its own world. For instance, Act 2 feels unbelievably through-composed. It is just this, uh, this kind of roller coaster that once you're on it, you're, you're not released. Uh, and it just it builds an intensity, but the the all of them are what I would say is despite this this gap in composing, they do feel inextricably linked because of the uh, the very specific kind of earthy guttural quality of Bert Whistle's music. How does he create this earthy guttural quality in terms of the instrumentation, in terms of how he deploys it? Well, I mean, I think that that is the nail on the head. It is through the instrumentation. I mean, the fact that there is an absence of strings is something that is worth noting from the beginning. So what we have is something quite raw. I mean, the, there are seven percussion stations. They take up almost a third of the opera pit. So, I mean, these are, there is an enormous amount, array of instruments that create sounds that I don't think uh, many of us will have heard before. There are things like the no-harp with which... The, uh, with which the piece begins that brings us into this, into this amazing sound world. And the very opening of the opera, I think, is really interesting in this regard because uh, it is a long time before a single note is actually heard. What we hear at the beginning it is percussion and voiced syllables as Orpheus is trying to find a way to, to speak and to find language of some kind. But the first note that we do hear is a G natural played on the clarinet, after which Orpheus sings. And um, in Jonathan Cross's book, he makes a really good point that one could see this as autobiographical because it was through the clarinet that Bert Whistle later then found his compositional voice. So he went to the Royal Manchester School as a clarinetist, didn't he? That's it was right. much later that the, the composition took hold. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, there was a, a long span between this, but it could be an interesting way of, of seeing the, the history in this opera. 
And we've not yet mentioned the, the electronic elements, obviously, as well as the acoustic. Can you talk us through how those are, again, deployed and how he organises his forces for that? Well, I would say that the electronics are, have two functions. The first one is a little more subtle. Uh, there are auras that run through the entire piece, and they are sometimes audible and sometimes not. And these are just ambient electronic pieces that, were, that, that go through underneath the acoustic score. And uh, sometimes punctuated within this, we have uh, moments of the voice of Apollo. Uh, and Apollo speaks in this language, uh, which is developed by the librettist Peter Sinofiev and is called Orphic. Uh, and, and this is uh, the, the catalyst, it's the, the voice of Apollo that, that is the catalyst to get Orpheus to initially speak and then to sing. But the second function of the electronics in the score uh, is that there are six interludes, uh, completely electronic interludes that were developed or realized by Barry Anderson at IRCAM in Paris, which is the uh, center for electroacoustic uh, musical development. And uh, I will give you a little snippet of one now. sounds are generated from a particular source aren't they exactly so they're all generated from harp sounds harp fragments uh, and it, yeah it's an, it, all of the interludes have their own very specific character and mood and this one particularly has this unbelievably well it, it's uh, it's extremely flowery i would say yeah. um, daniel and derek perhaps you can talk us through um thematically how the interludes sort of fit into the work as a whole both visually and in terms of, of story because they're not the office myth here are they yeah, I mean, we have basically two, two sections. So you've got what they call the passing clouds and you've got uh, allegorical flowers. And I think the easiest way to, to think them through and jump in um, is the idea that passing clouds were much more of like a, an overshadow of doom uh, or a, a hint of, of something fatalistic to come, uh, whereas the allegorical flowers were more a sense of from death and destruction comes life and, and hope. 
stories that reflect elements found in the myth itself. Yeah, yeah. so they're, they're definitely very much a, a metaphorical world. Uh, I mean, Bert Whistle tells us that it, from a construction point of view, they should feel like and look like nothing else that, w that exists in the rest of the opera. Um, in a lot of ways, it's like the opera pauses yeah. in order yeah. for them to happen. They're like floating paintings as they go along. Yeah. They're, in, they're enclosed in a glass box, literally, mm -hmm. aren't they? Yep. And did you think differently about creating those costumes to the others? Did they have to stand apart visually? Um, I, th I think everyone is so individual in this opera. Every, each character, obviously there's three Orpheuses and three Eurydice, Eurydice's and um, three Aristides, but um, everyone has their own, as everyone else does, have their own kind of personality. And I, I look back in myths and I looked how they were depicted. For example, um, Orpheus was always in red and she was always in blue and... Um, so I, you know, there's references there to them. In those glass boxes within the the, um, the mini myths, mm -hmm. there are these very kind of dark brown sort of animal figures. How yeah. how do we read them? Uh, they, they were like the titans. So um, I thought, what would be a it would be so cliche if I put really huge muscle men on stage with like you know bulging pecs and big massive legs and you know. So I, I kind of wanted to because it's a dream and it's not you know it's not real. Um, I, I wanted to put some kind of distorted, weird, like, something interesting, you know. I, you can turn the TV on and see that, so you may as well watch something more interesting on the stage, you know. And Adam, back to the, the sort of the musical world, these three acts are quite distinct in terms of their mood. We're in different seasons, aren't we? Can you give us a sense of what to expect from each of the three? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say with, with Act One, you very much feel like this is almost a prologue for what's to come. So inside, the, the, uh, the music feels quite often uh, quite fragmented in the sense that you are lurched from one style to another very quickly and you have something that is uh, it's almost technicolour. But then the second act, I would say this feels like the emotional heart of the opera. It's certainly the most intense and... Uh, in many ways, uh, the most symphonic in its writing. And this grows to uh, an almost suffocating climax uh, in the 14th arch. There are 17 arches with which Orpheus descends. Uh, I think ah. we have a little... Ah. We have a, and this is a, this is a bridge near where Bert Whistle lives that was the inspiration for, uh, inspiration for the second act of the opera. And uh, the third act... I would say, in many ways, feels like the most meditative and spiritual. And this is punctuated by the fact that we have this aura within it called the Aura of the Tides. And the Aura of the Tides is one of the most prominent of these electronic auras that I've spoken about. And gradually, as the act goes on, and this normal music starts to decay more and more, we are left just with this aura. And it's extremely moving, I would say. It's interesting you're talking about moving. We're talking a lot about human emotion, about grief here, because I think there's a general preconception about Bert Whistle's music that it's very intellectual, it's very tough, it's very difficult, is the word that comes up again and again. Is that fair? And if so, what guidance would you give people to, to while they're watching it? I'd say yes, yes. It's difficult. yes, it's fair. Absolutely, it's, <laughs> it's difficult. It's very yes, difficult. Absolutely but fair. I, I would, that's what people are passionate about. Yeah. It, that, I don't think, should be a reason to be, to be scared of it. And I, I would certainly say if you have no history of, uh, of, of Bert Whistle's music, of listening to it, of working on it, then I would say go in with an open mind. And I think in Bert Whistle's early, early compositional life, he strove to try and create a music that hadn't existed before. And I think he's really successful in this. Mm. And 
go let yourself go on a electrifying dramatic journey that doesn't subscribe to the musical rules of anything else. Mm. I, I think you're nodding also, a lot. And another um, part to that, it's very human. Like it may not look very human, but everything that goes on is is very simple. But mm. it just has a another um, a, another world happening at the same time. So it's yeah intellectual but not to the exclusion of emotion and yeah. humanity. Mm-hmm. Derek, he, um, Bert Whistle spent nearly 10 years working in the National Theatre. Mm-hmm. That suggests both a great interest in music theatre and a, a sort of great sort of apprenticeship watching some of the great directors. Can mm-hmm. we really feel that inherent theatricality in the school? I think, I think so, yeah. Um, I know that he, he definitely is, is writing from the point of view of, of how does this work on stage. Um, so I think that theatricality is, is definitely there. Um, it's interesting just, just talking about the score when we opened the score for the first time and there's musical things in there that I've never seen before. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a work of art in itself in that we've got these auras depicted with you know, every symbol under the sun and um, yeah, how, how anyone from a, a musical point of view or a production point of view is, is able to make sense of some of these things is, is amazing but it all comes from a place of reason. And I think that's probably one of the things just to really take home is there's, there's nothing there without purpose. It's because it can sound chaotic, but there is so much meticulous organisation yeah. and we can see in that yeah. image. That last also. slide, the last slide that you had. That one. Sorry, th- these are the sort of things that we're talking about in terms of the libretto that we're seeing. Um, so that is a plan for the whole opera, yeah. sort of at the macro level. Sorry, you can't really see the, um, the categories at the side, but you've got metamorphoses at the top, the journeys, the, the ceremonies that go on in the opera, the arches and the tides that you've mm. mentioned structurally, the allegorical flowers and the crowds, down to just the basic duration. So it's all mapped out from the very beginning. Yeah, right down to the second, I think, from memory. Isn't <laughs> it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, the three of you, as you experience this opera every night, are there moments that each time you go through it, you think, oh, I, I can't wait for that, but this is the moment, whether in terms of staging or the music. Definitely. Daniel, can we start with you? What's your the sort of moment to look out for? I like the... I think the 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 moments in the boxes are kind of really interesting, and the, the opening, and it just everything. Every time I see it, I'm staring somewhere else. I'm very lucky I've got to... We've got to see it so many times. But... um. Every, it, if you come again, you can see it from another angle. You can watch a whole different story go on. So, mm-hmm. Derek, what about you? Um, Adam's already alluded to it. I think the, the climax in the middle of Act Two, musically, is, is profound. Like, it's, it, it, it's just mind-blowing. Um, so that would definitely be the thing that stands out for me. In Act Two, some, someone's already mentioned that this is not a real journey down to the underworld in this version. It's a dream. Does that change it at all? Oh, does it change it at all? I'm, I'm not sure that it necessarily changes it. I mean, I think it, it, it gives us an out in a way, um, but at the same time, he's, it, he's still very much living it at the time. So the emotions are real, even if yeah, the, the journey so. isn't. I mean, there's, there's definitely the struggle going on throughout that, and it, and it builds and builds and builds and to, to breaking point for sure. Adam, what about you? Well, I'm, I'm going to say the same place, but I'll, I'll explain why I love it, which is that it's a moment in which every element musically of the piece coalesces. So uh, this is uh, one of the only moments in the piece where the only people on stage at this point are the Orpheus singer and the Eurydice singer. Mm. And at this point, we have both conductors, quite literally every member of the orchestra playing at enormous volume, thrilling uh, electric sequences happening 
below it, electronic sequences and full chorus. And it really is just unlike anything I've experienced in a, in a theatre before, actually. It really is, you, you feel pinned to your seat. So I'm very excited for you to see this bit. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, can you please join me in thanking our wonderful panel for getting, certainly me, very excited about the show. <laughs> <laughs>